You are listening to So What, a podcast from Canadian Mennonite University. CMU is in Treaty 1 territory, Winnipeg, Manitoba. I am your host, Jonas Cornelson, joining you from Treaty 7, Calgary, Alberta. Last month, we replayed an episode I did a couple years ago on the spirit and intent of treaty relationships between First Nations and the Crown in Canada. With that in mind, I want to tell you a story of how this relationship has played out recently with struggles and successes on a contested parcel of land in southwest Winnipeg, just two kilometers from CMU's main campus. So I think some of the the fears, I think, speak to the broader issue in this city in terms of relationship building. I want to be able to live beside you and you to know that I have good intent, and I think Capion could be symbolic. You know, with with respect to uh, uh, the opportunity and certainly the uh, the stumbling blocks, it's exactly that that understanding of being able to live together and embrace you know this development. You just heard the voice of Chief Glenn Hudson from Peguis First Nation in Manitoba, and before that, Leah Gazan a Lakota academic and community organizer who is now the Member of Parliament for Winnipeg Centre. They were speaking at a town hall conversation in 2015, co-hosted by CMU and Mennonite Church Canada. It was on the possibility of Treaty 1 First Nations developing an urban reserve at the site of the former Kapyong military barracks. If you've heard about this story in the news in the past, well, decade or so, You've likely heard about court proceedings that stopped the Department of National Defense from selling this parcel of land to a Crown Corporation for redevelopment without first consulting the First Nations of Treaty 1, which covers the city of Winnipeg and much of the surrounding area. What you may not have heard were the conversations and questions in the local neighborhood about what an urban reserve was and how it would be integrated with the areas surrounding the land in question. We might call this the neighboring aspect of treaty. While the courts in Ottawa ruled on the legal stuff, who had the right to develop what land, the conversation in Winnipeg's tuxedo community turned to what it looks like for treaty partners to live literally side by side. This is a piece of land that has become a symbol of both the the negative in the relationship between First Nations and other Canadians and a symbol of the hopefulness that could be in that relationship. Um, a lot of people drive by the property, you see that, you see stagnation, you see um, lack of action, you see conflict, it, and it, it all becomes personified and, and kind of exemplified in this piece of 160 acres of land. That was Jamie Wilson. At the time, he was commissioner for the Treaty Relations Commission of Manitoba a non-government organization that uses education and research to enhance treaty relationships in the province. Jamie's image of going past the property and seeing stagnation and lack of action is an experience I've had a lot. Let's say you're taking the bus from downtown Winnipeg to CMU, westbound along Grant Avenue. As you approach Keniston Boulevard, a major north-south artery, You come out of a residential area with modest houses, some low-rise apartments, and businesses at street level. At the intersection with Keniston, on the east side, 
To your left, there's a large chain grocery store with an even larger parking lot. And to your right, there's a busy strip mall with restaurants, retail, and offices. Then you continue across Keniston Boulevard and suddenly, nothing. Empty fields, until recently with a few derelict buildings, all surrounded by barbed wire fences on both sides of the street. No trespassing signs. Further to the south, across the railway tracks, you can see the massive IKEA sign going up. In two more bus stops, you're back in a residential neighborhood. If you don't know the story of that strip of vacant land, the empty space is simply confusing. Winnipeg has never been known for great urban planning, but this is exceptional. If you do know the story, as Jamie said, you might think of the strained relationship between First Nations and settler Canadians. Why didn't the Defense Department reach out to their treaty partners in the first place when they decided to sell the barracks? Why did it take more than 10 years from the initial court challenge for a solution to be found? And then, the question at hand that evening in 2015 at CMU. Why were some people in the local area so concerned about the prospect of being neighbors to an urban First Nations reserve? By this point, it was fairly clear that the First Nations were going to win, or already had won, the case in court. But nobody wants to move into a neighborhood where they don't feel welcome. And during the town hall event at CMU, a full house with standing room only, some area residents, non-indigenous people, were vocal about their concern over what would be built there and how it would impact them. There are over 500 owners that back onto that that live on Swindon Way, we have a very large interest involved. Depending upon what goes into Capion, it's gonna have yeah. a very large yeah. bearing on what we own and live in. But one of the things I'm concerned about is this concept that, okay, what's gonna to happen to our property values if this thing's a bust? Do building codes apply? Does it, you know, like uh, what about fire services, yeah. water? I hesitated to play these clips. I don't want to dwell on or sensationalize the tension here, but that tension is part of the story. These responses illustrate some of the fear and confusion that was present at the time. And looking back, some of the confusion is understandable, as with the gentleman asking about the city of Winnipeg's role in providing services. When stories like this take off, some of those nuances tend to be lost. To get us all on the same page, with an urban reserve, the land is not directly taxable by the municipality. It's First Nations land, not city land. But the area still needs water services, garbage collection, emergency response, etc. And so First Nations negotiate municipal servicing agreements with the city and pay the equivalent value of what the city would have collected in property tax in exchange for those services. This information, while publicly available, is not the kind of thing that goes viral you're far more likely to hear an oversimplification like urban reserves don't pay property tax on social media and get angry or confused. At the end of the day, urban reserves provide First Nations greater opportunity and prosperity. Sometimes they are referred to as economic development zones. Urban reserves also generate both financial wealth and cultural vibrancy that benefits all residents in areas of cities that have often been underused. Remember our imagined bus ride along Grant Avenue. Amid the confusion that was present in the room that day in 2015 about what an urban reserve would look like, here's Leah Gazan again on the much greater cost of not developing the area in question. 
I'd like to bring up the cost of not developing it. I mean, if you look at the land and all the development around it, you see an IKEA going up, you see uh, Cabela's and all this development. And then in, in the midst of all of this wonderful development, there's this eyesore that is really taking its toll on local property values. Um, so when we're talking about developing that area, it's not just businesses, it's also building to the cultural vibrancy of the neighbourhood. And here is a little more from Chief Glenn Hudson on what an urban reserve offers to all treaty partners. That means everyone. You know, as far as Treaty 1 in terms of this development, it represents uh, economic opportunities for us, uh, both uh, First Nations and non-First Nations. I just want to share, you know, with uh, other provinces across this country, this has happened. The city of Winnipeg, one of the last major cities to allow this to happen. And we're saying why? Because this is where we originally signed the treaties. And I think that this is something that uh, we need to open up and certainly uh, pursue because uh, it offers benefits, again, not only to First Nations, but non-First Nations uh, people. So, you know, th those things we can realize uh, through this development and uh, we see both residential and commercial development happening uh, where we can uh, rent and lease uh, buildings and certainly uh, housing out to whoever may have uh, the interest of, uh, of leasing. And uh, as indicated previously, you, you know, it would be seamless. And that's something I think we need to embrace as, as uh, the city of Winnipeg. And I think it's time, the time has come for us to, to take that next step. And certainly that's uh, what Kapiong represents to us. I don't know how the local neighbours who came to express their concerns that evening felt when they left. One theme that came up repeatedly at the event was it would be easier for people to support the development if they knew what the plan looked like. However, at the time, an agreement on the sale of the land had yet to be reached. That wasn't finalized until 2019. In retrospect, while initial design conversations were likely happening, I'm sympathetic to the leaders of Treaty 1 for not investing as heavily in detailed planning until they were more certain that such a plan could be enacted. So while those concrete planning concerns were yet to be addressed, I wonder if there was at least some softening from the opportunity to learn more about the spirit and intent of treaty relationships and how that could be realized on this piece of land. There is maybe some evidence of that softening. Seven years later, in 2022, another event was held at CMU, presenting the long-awaited master plan for this development. Here is how another Treaty 1 leader, Chief Gordon Blue Sky, assessed the temperature of the room by comparison, noting how many people were or were not in attendance. I must say, though, uh, the last event that I did attend here, prior to uh, us even having our, our um, comprehensive settlement agreement signed off, and uh, this place was full. I don't know if anybody was here. I'm sure some of you must have been. People really wanted, I guess, to hear our, the, the initial plan. So I don't know if tonight's uh, a sign of good things that uh, they're comfortable with what's going on. The audience that chuckled there was maybe half the size of the ones Chief Blue Sky and others had spoken to in 2015. And it's true that, especially since 2019, when that comprehensive settlement on the land was reached, there has been more information available about the plans for the area, which is now known as Nawi Udana, Anishinaabe for Center of the Heart and Community. We're going to talk about those plans and what they mean for treaty relationships going forward 
in the next couple episodes of this series. Stay tuned. For now, thanks for listening. I'd love to hear from you. Leave a comment on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash so what podcast. My name is Jonas Cornelson, and I'll be back next month with another episode. Talk to you soon. Thank you.